Open your Bibles, if you would, to First uh, Peter. First Peter chapter 2. Thanks for being with us today and uh, for singing together. It's a blessed thing to sing together. As you're turning to First Peter chapter 2 in your Bibles, um, I wanted to just kind of address you on a, on a more personal note. As I was uh, over here singing last week, I, was, uh, I came under very strong, heavy conviction uh, by the Holy Spirit about uh, a particular issue in regard to this COVID situation. And mainly that um, I have failed in leadership in not providing what, uh, what is needed during that time. When the whole lockdown thing came in the, and COVID, et cetera, um, there were issues that needed to be addressed as far as to help people understand what was going on, to help people um, know how to deal biblically with the problems, the challenges of life at that time. Whether it was fear of the virus itself, well, how do you think biblically about that? Um, we, we talked about that some, but, but um, we could have talked about it more and more to the point uh, I needed to be uh, more proactive in reaching out to people and talking to, to individuals about how they were wrestling through this. And then the lockdown came and, and uh, things like that. Um, it just occurred to me as I was singing last week, I was thinking that our responsibility, particularly my responsibility as, as the teaching pastor, is to help you think biblically about the life challenges and joys, uh, but challenges and difficulties that you face. And, uh, and I failed to do that. I needed to um, follow up with people and uh, talk to them more specifically about their situation, how they were working through this. Were they, were they scared to death? Were they uh, struggling with loneliness? Were they, um, you know, was their life falling apart because they didn't have the weekly gathering of the church together and wa- watching it on the couch? On TV was not the same, etc. So I needed to be uh, talking to people uh, more and uh, addressing people more personally. So that, that was a failure of initiative on my part. But um, last week, I think what convicted me, the timing, what caused the timing of the conviction for me last week was this most recent mask mandate from the governor. And um, I knew what I thought about it as soon as I heard about it. And I knew what most of you would think about it for the most part. As, as soon as I heard about it. And, um, and so I just sort of let things lie. Live and let live. And, uh, and you do your thing, and you're just as independent probably as I am, and you're going to make your own decision. You're going to wear a mask if you want to, or you're not going to wear a mask, and I couldn't really care less. That was sort of my attitude. And, um, and that's inappropriate, uh, particularly from someone who's whose God-given responsibility it is to help us think biblically about the, uh, the issues of our lives. And so um, the message that we're preaching today should have been preached last week, but um, I was unprepared because I had not prepared myself. I had not addressed the issue. I had not taken the initiative. I had not had the courage to look at the mandate from the governor and see how we think about it biblically and therefore help you know how to think about it biblically. And so... Um, that that was sin. That was that was a failure on my part, and um, and I, I know the root of it, and have confessed that, etc., before God. But I I do pray that that you will be able to uh, find it in your heart to forgive me, and pray for me that I would um, grow in initiative and encourage in such things. I'm a Phalanite. I like to be left alone, and I like to leave people alone. I'm not going to bother you. You're not going to bother me, and it's going to be great. Except that that's in a situation like this where life intersects with us in such a way, not only our individual lives, our business lives, but us as a church and how we relate, that's unacceptable. We've got to know how to think biblically on these topics. And so uh, that is the purpose of today's message. And uh, I trust the Lord that even though this should have been preached last week, that his, in his sovereignty, uh, it will be good that it's preached this week. And so it's my prayer that good will come from this. You've got your Bible open to First Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to read from there. I'm also going to read from Romans uh, 13 um, when we're done with that. So we can never get very far from Romans, it seems like, and nothing wrong with that. So 
First Peter chapter two, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And then Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, fear to whom fear is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you, almighty God, creator of all things, have spoken to us. You've communicated truth to us, your truth. What is important for us to know and believe and obey. Father, we confess that in our own hearts, in our own thoughts, we are often rebellious. And I, for one, prefer to think my own thoughts and not be interrupted by the thoughts of others. And then you give us your word. And I open your word and my thoughts are interrupted by yours. I pray this morning that our thoughts would be interrupted by yours. Be at work in us by your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our sermon today answers the questions or seeks to answer the questions, what should the Christian's attitude and relationship be to earthly authorities? From governmental authorities to the family and the church, how does God want us to relate to the human authorities we have over us? Well, in answer to that, you can see in your outline there, it's a five-point kind of progression, but it's rooted in the Old Testament concept, which, of course, is carried over powerfully into the New Testament, the concept of the fear of God, the fear of God. And throughout the message today, I I will attempt to uh, change... In some of the New Testament passages we read, my version tends to translate that word fear as respect. Those are different. And so uh, I will try to remember to switch those over, but I I will probably forget some. But it's important for us to know in looking at the concept of authority and our submission to it, that it's rooted in the Old Testament concept of the fear of God, which answers the question, deals with the question, who's in control? Who's in control? We don't use that word fear very often. That's why it's translated respect in my Bible and probably yours too. And it might have some other uh, ways that it's translated. But it is the word fear. And we don't talk about fearing something unless we're afraid of something. Like if you're afraid of spiders, right? That's If you're afraid of uh, asteroids, I don't know what you might be afraid of, right? But you have something that like if that thing happens or if that thing comes, you're out of there. We use the word fear that way. But we don't often use the word fear appropriately in a a biblical way. Sometimes in the Bible it has that meaning. Other times in the Bible it has a meaning that we're going to talk about today. And so the question of the fear of God, the question of the fear of anyone has to do with who's in control. Who's in control? 
And of course, as soon as I mentioned the word fear or the fear of the Lord, what popped into your mind right away was the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Numerous times in in uh, the Old Testament, in, in different verses, we have that concept that there's something basic, fundamental about growing in wisdom that is rooted in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs eight thirteen says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Proverbs ten twenty seven says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life. That's a good benefit. Prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. So you see there's a benefit of fearing the Lord, of prolonging life. It's blessing, God blessing you. But it's contrasted with wickedness. So somehow those two are put in opposition, fear of the Lord versus wickedness. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. There's a connection between fear of the Lord and humility. Those are in parallel with one another. There's, a, there's something essential. Humility is essential. It's an essential aspect of fearing the Lord. Humility is connected with that. And we could look at other passages. Proverbs 22 and verse 4 says something very similar, connecting humility and fear. But I think maybe putting it in, terms, uh, in human terms with an example might be helpful for us. And that is uh, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 2. The Lord is speaking to Noah. He's making the Noahic covenant. Noah represents all of humanity. He and his family were all of humanity at that time. And God is addressing him. And God says to Noah, The fear of you, Noah, and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Now, something very interesting about the Noahic covenant that we're reading about there in Genesis chapter 9 is that it is a restatement a recapitulation of the first commandment we have in the Bible, which is in Genesis chapter 1, given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and and subdue it and rule over it, have dominion over it. That's the command that he gives. That's in Genesis chapter 1. Have dominion over the earth, that Adam and Eve, you're to be in charge of all creatures. And then in Genesis chapter 9, God puts it in different terms. He says, the fear of you, And the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. What's he saying? Not just that animals will be scared of us and they'll run when we come. But that he's placing an order of authority. The blue whale is larger than us. The uh, great white shark is meaner than us. But we are in authority over those creatures. We have been placed there. And so... The question being answered when we talk about the fear of God is who is in control? Who's in control? Whether we like to admit it or not, one of us is in control. Are we in control or is God in control? And that's why I say it's rooted in humility because the fear of the Lord is rooted in the concept that I am not God. He is and he is over me. It's a recognition of that reality. So biblical fear is a recognition that someone else has dominion. Someone else is in charge and has the control. And so to fear God is just to recognize that fact. He's God and he's in control. So what's the result? What's the result? It's the question of who's in control, but then what results from it? Proverbs 6 and verse 6 says, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. It produces obedience. Psalm 112.1, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights, who greatly delights in his commandments. The fear of the Lord results in delighting in God's commandments, delighting in doing what God says to do. Psalm 128, verse 1, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. So there's a direct connection between fearing God and obedience to God. The result of the fear of the Lord is obedience to Him. To fear God is to recognize that He's in charge. He gets to tell me what to do. And He gets to hand out punishment if I don't do what He says to do. 
That's what the fear of God is. Now, I can deny that. I can deny that fact. But that's just denying reality. It's not changing reality. It's, it's, a, it's a decision of insanity. It's a, if I say, ah, God's not in charge anymore, that obviously is contrary to reality, contrary to fact. I'm making something up. I'm living in fantasy land. So a lot of people don't fear the Lord. Perhaps even most people don't fear the Lord. And they should. Because He really is God. And they really are not. So fear of the Lord is the question of who's in control. And we see the result that comes from that. So that's the relationship between us and God. Why do I talk about that? Well, because that same concept is brought down into our earthly relationships. And so we see the discussion in our second point here of the fear of uh, the fear and relationships. We may have fear of relationships, but I mean fear and relationships. How does the fear of God impact our relationships with one another? So first of all, where does it apply? Where does it apply? Turn to Colossians 3, if you would, please. I'm going to be reading a lot of passages today, and I'm going to be reading quickly. Um, I'm trying to be mindful of the time and get through the material. And so um, bear with me, please. Colossians chapter 3. In a moment, we're going to look at a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5. But Colossians chapter 3 talks about where this fear applies. So what I want you to do as I'm reading through this, he's talking about relationships between wives and husbands, between children and parents, between bond servants and masters. So he's talking about various earthly relationships. And he's talking about authority structure within those relationships. And what I want you to listen for is, is how the fear of the Lord impacts those relationships. So I'm going to read... Colossians 3:18 through the end of the chapter wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In these various relationships where there's authority structure and there's submission, there's instruction given to both parties, both to the submitting party and to the party that is being submitted to. There's instruction given to each. And each one that's in authority is given the instruction of being generous, being kind. Um, um, And I didn't read chapter 4 and verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So there's instruction given to those who are in authority. And there's the main thrust of the instruction that I want to focus on during our time today is the instruction given to those who are under authority and how they are to respond to the authorities over them. And the main point I want to draw from this passage is that we are to obey earthly authorities as we obey God. As we obey God. In other words, we obey our earthly authorities in all things. Do we obey God in all things? We should. And we should obey our earthly authorities in all things. We obey God with a sincerity of heart. And we are to obey our earthly authorities with a sincerity of heart. Knowing ultimately that in so doing... We are rendering service to God, and we will receive reward from God. And so how do we relate, how do we relate to those around us in this authority uh, structure, these various authority structures we, we live under? Well, we see that understanding the fear of God now comes into play in these various relationships that we've got. And we could talk about others. We're going to talk about uh, governing authorities, uh, the state authorities, etc. We're going to talk about those, but this, this would also apply in a church relationship. 
that's not the direction we're going to go today, but there, there's, there's submission and different things uh, as we think about relating to one another as a church. So where does it apply? Well, even in human relationships, the fear of God reply, uh, applies. Well, secondly, how does it apply? What, what does it look like? That's where I want us to go to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, which is a parallel passage to the one we have here, but it expands some different things than, uh, than Colossians, than Paul does in Colossians, but uh, very similar. But it talks about how does this apply? So again, listen for the fear of the Lord in here. And it may, it may be the word respect, uh, but, but listen, how, listen to what drives these, uh, these relationships. I'm going to read quite a bit, all the way through 6-9. Starting in 5-21, submit to one another out of fear for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one, who, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man should shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she fears her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would obey Christ, not not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So how, how does it apply? In what ways? Well, you can see he expands in certain areas and gives the motivation, gives the What's going on behind our submission to our earthly authorities? It's fear of the Lord. Our submission in these various relationships is given in fear of the Lord. And so, for example, the wife fears her husband. Not that she's afraid of him, not that she runs away when he comes home. This isn't talking about a situation where we have an abusive husband who's beating his wife or or something like that. That's not what he's discussing and that's not what I'm talking about. It's talking about that fear of the Lord that understands, that that we see exemplified in the fear of the Lord, understanding that God is the one who has the authority. And in a husband-wife relationship, the husband has the authority. And so fear means to understand that and properly relate to that authority that the husband has. And so each one of us who submits in an earthly relationship or we are to be submitted, does so in fear of God, fear of the Lord. The same way we submit to Him and His authority, we submit to the authorities He has placed over us. And so what's the application here? Well, fear your authority as you fear God. As you fear God, as you give service to God, as you submit yourself to God, submit yourself to your authority, knowing that He's the one who placed that authority there. In fact, submitting, submitting to our earthly authorities is a means by which we submit to God as our authority. It's not the only means, but it is a means by which we 
submit to God. It's a sign of our submission to God. So that's how the fear of God and understanding the concept of fear relates to our relationships. What about, what about uh, fear and injustice? Because it turns out that every now and again there's an authority that's unjust. How do we relate to such an authority? So that raises the first question here. What about unjust authorities? What about unjust authorities? So turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, if you would. I'm going to read a large section here, starting in verse 13 and going all the way through uh, into chapter 3. What about unjust authorities? So listen for discussion that Peter's going to give of authorities who are unjust and what our response should be to them. How is our submission affected or not affected by the fact that the authority over us is unjust? So chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear that do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So what about unjust authorities? Well, we ran into an unjust authority or two in that passage. He says, first of all, we are to be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. We submit to the emperor, he says, to governors that are sent by him for the sake of the Lord. And he says also that this is a means of silencing the foolishness of the ignorant who uh, want to accuse us, want to look for any opportunity to bring an accusation against Christians. Ah, they're lazy or, yeah, they're just rebellious or, yeah, they don't listen to Caesar. They, they, they just do what, what Jesus says and, and, and they don't care. They don't submit an authority. They don't, they don't pay their taxes or they're squirrely or they're whatever, right? And he says, no, by your good conduct, you are to silence those who would bring such ignorant accusations against you so that they can look and see, no, actually, you are an upstanding citizen. You are in submission to the authorities that are over you. 
It's pleasing to God when we endure sorrows and we do so when we, because of suffering for good. It's pleasing to God that that would be the case. Even in a situation where we have unjust authorities, we submit to them. Because we are submitted ultimately to God. Doing what God says. Obeying Him. Knowing that He's in authority, that He's the ultimate authority, and He has placed this authority, authority over me. And so, even though this authority over me is unjust, I don't get to do the thing I really want to, which is rebel and run away or shake my fist in the face of that unjust authority over me. I don't get to do that. God put that authority there. And so I submit to that authority, even if that authority is unjust. And if that results in my own suffering, that's not a deal breaker. That suffering is precious in the sight of God. That suffering in that context, because you are continuing to do good by submitting to God, who is your ultimate authority, and thus suffering at the hands of an intermediate authority, an unjust authority between you, that's precious in God's sight. You are ministering on His behalf. You are submitted to Him the way you ought to be. Well, that's hard. I don't like that. I will run away from that every chance I get if I, if I listen to my flesh. But we have an example in Scripture, don't we? The example of Christ. We could look at other examples. But the example he gives here is Christ himself. He's the prime example. See, you and I, though we may not have broken that law, or maybe we haven't disobeyed you know, that particular mandate or whatever from the authority over us, yet we, we have sin and we have done wrong things. And so when we suffer, well, you know, maybe I didn't mean, you know, I, I, I didn't... It's, I'm not rightly suffering for that issue, but I probably should suffer for something over here. But Jesus himself had done nothing wrong. He was pure and innocent. And yet he also was arrested, was beaten, was mistreated. Look at verse 21, chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Okay, so he, he's a much more prime example than you and I are. Because we, we have sinned, and, and there is deceit in our mouth. But there's not for him. And when he was reviled, what did he do? Say, so you don't have the right to revile me. I haven't done anything wrong. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So here's Jesus being led away, being beaten, having his beard torn out, mistreated, blasphemed, cursed. And all of it, he didn't didn't deserve a drop of it. And he endured it. He endured it. He could have turned the tables at any moment he wanted to, and he didn't. And so he's our example We're called to do the same, and thus servants submit even to unjust masters. Jesus is your authority. Wives submit even to unbelieving husbands. Because Jesus did. He submitted to unjust authorities. So what's the purpose? What happens? What's the result? Why? What's what's going on here? Are we just supposed to suffer and that's it? Well, he gives reason. He answers what the purpose is when he's talking about Jesus himself, doesn't he? That Jesus, who is our example, who had committed no sin, etc., he was reviled, but he didn't revile in, in return and all that stuff. Why did he do that? Just to show that suffering is an important thing in God's sight and then that's the end of the story? No. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His suffering at the hands of unjust men accomplished our redemption. It was redemptive ultimately. He suffered, he paid the price, and we received the redemption. 
You say, well, that's Jesus, and that's Jesus' unique mission. That by His wounds, we have been healed. That's His mission. But He expands it. He continues. What's the purpose of our suffering? Look at chapter 3. Because He gave the example of Jesus, but... You know, we tend to put Jesus in a different category because he's the God-man and he came on a particular mission and all those sorts of things. So we kind of leave Jesus to himself and we say, well, we're different and it doesn't really apply to us and we didn't come to die for the sins of the world and, and et cetera. We tend to leave Jesus out there different from us. But look what Peter does here. He says, likewise, chapter 3 and verse 1, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, meaning even if some are not believers... This husband is not a believer. He's, he doesn't have Christian values. He's not submitted to the Lord. He doesn't have fear of the Lord. He's going to treat his wife in a different way. He's going to be an unbelieving husband, which is a great contrast to a believing husband. What about that situation? So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That the, the wife, and again, I'm not talking about an abusive situation. That's a different issue. That's not what's being discussed here. This is talking about a situation where you have a woman who is a believer and her husband, who is her authority, is not a believer. An unbelieving husband is going to have different values than a believing husband or even than his, than his believing wife. He, he wants to spend the money differently. His focus in life is different. His goals are different. He may love his wife and take care of his wife. Sunday morning is going to have a different value to him. He's going to see things differently. And she, as, as the wife of this unbelieving husband, is along for the ride. She would love to give generously to missions or to help out in this benevolent situation. But she's got an unbelieving husband who wants to do something very different with that money or with that time. And so she's, she's in this situation where she's bound. She's, it's an unjust situation. She should have a believing husband, but she doesn't. So what's she supposed to do? Well, she suffers in that context. And, and as she has to miss church continually because her husband wants to go camping every weekend or hunting season and she has to go or whatever the, the situation might be that his values are different. And he asks her sometime. Honey, you're a Christian. I know you want to go to church. I know you uh, want to do these Christian things. I know you value these different things. Why do you stick with me? Why do you submit yourself to me? You could say, no, I'm not going on vacation. I'm going to church. But instead you submit. Why do you do that? And she has opportunity to share. Because of her gentle and quiet spirit, the way she's been submitted, she's able to share. And who knows but that that might lead to his conversion. That some of them, even though they don't believe the word, they might be one because of your gentle and quiet spirit. Because of your conduct. Be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So even in that situation, he gives an example how it could be redemptive. Now, is it always going to result in the conversion of the husband? The redemption of the husband? Of course not. But it's, a, it's an instrument God uses. And it may result in the redemption of that person. So even in this situation, the, the suffering under an unjust authority is an opportunity for God to bring redemption. Just as He did with Christ, who suffered unjustly at the hands of ungodly men, and it resulted in our redemption, so also, even in this situation, the example He gives of a wife, when she suffers in that way, it can result in the, the redemption, the conversion of her husband. And so I ask the question, what's the result? What's the purpose? Well, it might result in the redemption of that, uh, of that authority, but even for itself, suffering for righteousness' sake brings blessing. It itself brings blessing. It is precious in God's sight. And so this woman who's suffering in this situation... Down to verse 14 of chapter 3. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And this isn't just a wife to an unbelieving husband. This is, this is a Christian who is in submission to some authority that in some way at least is unjust.
you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So all the while this person, this Christian, is submitting to this unjust authority, she has Christ set apart as Lord, as holy. She fears God. And she's always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks her for the reason, for the hope that's in her. So if this authority says, you know, the, the, the boss says, look, Christian, I keep making you work on Sunday or whatever the thing is. I don't know. I keep, I keep making you do these things and I keep thinking it'll break you and that you'll quit or that you'll uh, tell me off, but you continue in submission, Christian. How, how can that be? Well, now's your opportunity. I submit to you because I submit to God. I submit to God. It's an opportunity for you to share the hope that is in you. And yet, even in that instance, you do it with gentleness and respect. And so, that's the, our relationship with an unjust authority. We need to move on quickly here. Uh, Romans 13. Turn to Romans 13. Fear and government. Because these are just interpersonal relationships we've been talking about. But Paul has a lengthy section here in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, that really addresses authority. And the question I want to ask, the first question is, how did it get there? That's the first question. The second question, what role does it play? How did it get there and what role does it play? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? And do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So how did it get there? God put it there. God put that authority there. That's how it got there. It comes with His authority. It's the means He uses to administer His authority to us, to us in numerous aspects of our lives. And so to resist that authority is to resist God. It incurs judgment. And that judgment may be at the hands of the sword that the state wields, which is a minister of God's wrath. We submit because we don't want to be guilty of opposing God and thus bear His wrath. And what role does it play? What role does earthly authority play? Particularly governing authorities in this situation? Did you notice that uh, He used the word ministers for the governors? I know in other countries there's a minister, they have a prime minister and all that stuff. He said the governing authorities are ministers of God. Servants. He used the word servants of God. They are the instruments God uses to govern this world and to govern our lives. And so they are His ministers. They are His servants. So what's the application? Give them what is due them. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God God, the things that are God's. So we submit. We obey. But that raises the question you've all really been wanting me to get to, and that is fear and disobedience, which is the last point. So in other words, is there ever a point, is there ever a time, is there ever a place when we do not obey our earthly authorities? Well, the answer is yes, of course. And I'm going to give a couple of examples from the Bible here. First, what if they, the earthly authorities, demand what God prohibits? If they demand from you what God prohibits, what do you do then? We have an excellent example in Exodus chapter 1 where the Hebrew midwives, remember this is during the time, about the time Moses is going to be born. Pharaoh is uh, concerned that the nation of Israel is expanding too much. They're going to be too big. So he issues a decree to the midwives, kill all the baby boys when they're born. Sounds like something Herod would do in the New Testament. 
Kill all the baby boys when they're born. Don't let them live. And the Hebrew midwives did exactly what they should do. They disobeyed that authority. They preserved the life of those babies. That's precisely what they should have done. And then when the authorities came and said, how come these, uh, I see all these baby boys around? I thought you were supposed to put them to death. What's going on? So their, their illicit baby-saving operation was now in danger. And what did they do? They lied through their teeth to the governing authorities. They told Pharaoh, ah, oh, these Hebrew women, they just give birth so quickly, we can't even get there in time. It's crazy. They lied through their teeth. You know what God says about the whole thing? He blessed them for it. In fact, He blessed the entire nation of Israel for it. This is all in Exodus chapter 1 if you want to go look at that. So here was a situation where Pharaoh was demanding that they kill babies. And these women said, not a chance. And they disobeyed it. And when their ministry was in trouble, they even lied to the Pharaoh about it so they could save more babies. And God blessed them for it. So there is a a time to obey earthly authority, and that's if they demand from you what God prohibits. So what's the application? If your earthly authority demands that you do what God prohibits, disobey that earthly authority because you fear God. Whether it's your husband, whether it's your boss, whether it's your governor, whether it's a police officer, whatever that authority is. If they demand you do what God prohibits, you disobey that earthly authority. Well, what if they prohibit what God demands? We have an example from Acts chapter 4 of exactly that. The apostles Peter and John had been preaching, and they got arrested for it. They were brought before the religious authorities, and the religious authorities said, you, you can no longer preach in the name of Jesus. We'll let you go, but you can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And the apostle said, I'm sorry, Jesus said we're to go and preach. And so you saying we can't go and preach in his name, which, which do you think we should obey, God or you? That's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is we're going to obey God. And so they went out and they preached. They disobeyed the authority because the authority forbade what God demanded. So the application, if your earthly authority forbids you to do what God demands, disobey that earthly authority. Obey God and deal with the consequences. Your authority is greater than to... Your, your authority that you're fearing is greater than that authority in this world. So what's the upshot of all this? Well, you have objections that are raised in your own mind and uh, those objections raised in my own mind. That's part of the reason I didn't preach on this last week. The objections you raise, the arguments that you raise, whether it's, whether it's from the Constitution, uh, whether it's from uh, because you've become a ma- an expert in masks uh, or how viruses spread or uh, political theory and Marxism and what, how, whatever... Whatever arguments you might raise, and I've raised all of those, that's why I mentioned them, have got to be dealt with biblically. Have got to be dealt with biblically. And so when I come to our current situation with the mask mandate, we need to submit to earthly authorities that God has placed over us, except in areas where they demand or forbid something that's contrary to God. If they demand us to do something contrary, we will disobey them. If they, uh, if they forbid us from doing something God demands, we will disobey them. But the governor has issued this mask mandate. And I can't see, and I, I've not, I'm kind of on my own here. This is my own thinking. The elders have not been able to hash through this all the way. But, but I don't see anything in here where, that Governor Sisolak said that requires us to disobey God. I don't see this forbidding us to do something that God requires, nor do I see this requiring something of us that God forbids. And so as I see it, it seems to me that we need to figure out how to obey this, regardless of what we think about it. I think we need to figure out how to obey it. And so we've not done so yet. Again, I'm speaking and the, and the elders are, uh, you know, we're, we haven't been able to work through it yet. We will. And when we work through that, when we figure out how this applies to us, we will let you know. But these passages seem pretty clear. And this has to be the beginning. This has to be the foundation of our argument. 
is what this says about us obeying our earthly authorities. Regardless of what our opinions of that earthly authority or even the decree given, the mandate given, regardless of what that is, we're going to obey Scripture. We're going to honor God because that is precious in His sight. And by the way, wearing a mask is not an injustice being done to us. And so uh, we're probably going to, we need to figure out how Parkside can obey this in our, in our context. And again, this is me speaking on uh, my own behalf, not, not on behalf of the elders. But secondly, I want to say, and, and uh, the elders have talked about this, that should there come a time when a mandate comes out of the Capitol where the governor says, you have to stop doing this thing God commands you to do, we will do the thing God commanded us to do. We'll disobey respectfully. We'll disobey our authority. If he, if he forbids us, uh, if he commands us to do something that, that God forbids us to do, we'll obey God. We'll obey God. And uh, do so respectfully, but we will. And so these passages, uh, I encourage you to go back and look through them again and work through them. They're powerful to me. And they revealed my sin. I... My flesh don't like this. Leave me alone. That's what my flesh says. You stay over there. I will live my life here. And that is fleshly. That's Nevadan and it's Falonite and it's fallen and fleshly. We need to have a biblical understanding of what submission to our earthly authorities looks like. So we need to work on that. And so, uh, and so we will do that. I encourage you to go home and submit yourself to these passages. Read through them. Meditate through them. And when you have arguments, your arguments had better deal with these. If the argument starts from the Magna Carta, you're probably going to have problems. Okay, let's, let's argue biblically on that topic. We come now to the Lord's Supper. And after all this, you think, Brennan, how can you, how can you come to the Lord's Supper? But uh, as you're taking out your elements that are in a baggie, and hope you grabbed them earlier... Uh, very carefully pour the cup and prepare all that stuff. And as you're preparing that, listen to, uh, again, to what Peter says. This is what we're celebrating. These words Peter talks about in chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." We celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is, this is something for Christians to do. This is a celebration, a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. We get to taste it. We get to feel it. Him giving Himself for us, offering Himself up for us that we might be redeemed, that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. That by His wounds... We would be healed. That doesn't mean healed in our body. It's speaking primarily about redemption. Redemption because of what he suffered. And so this is something that Christians do. If, if you're not a believer, if you don't know Christ, think about what we're saying. Trust in this Christ that we're talking about. This one who would, who would endure injustice. The worst injustice ever that he would endure it and do so on purpose out of submission to God for the glory set before him to redeem you. And so we come to the elements. Christian, as we're... We're not going to have time passing the elements around so you'll have less time to pray than you might normally. But pray... Confess your sin to God. And you will find forgiveness in Christ. That He paid for the entirety of that. 
when he did what we are celebrating together. He gave himself. And there is forgiveness in him. And there is forgiveness only in him. But the forgiveness we find in him is full and perfect and complete. And not only is sin removed, not only is that guilt, that stain removed, but his righteousness is applied to us when we trust in him. So we stand before God and we we have his track record. Not ours. I don't want mine. You don't want mine. And we have his. Our sin is washed away. His righteousness is applied. And so we celebrate that when we come to the Lord's Supper. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord, Paul says, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands bread. It represents the body of Christ that he gave for us. He didn't have to. He bound himself to do it. He suffered at the hands of unjust and ungodly men, being reviled and cursed and hated, beaten and killed. And he did so because of you, because of his fear of you, because you're a greater authority, because he wanted to accomplish something greater, not just for himself, for us, to redeem us. He gave himself. And so we hold in our hand this bread and we think of his body given for us that that which was broken upon the tree means life for us. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands the cup, representing the blood of Christ, shed for us unjustly, graciously from our perspective. His life's blood poured out that we would have the forgiveness of sins. The final picture of the injustice done to the Son of God, the only Holy One, the only One who had honored you, and yet He stood in the place of the condemned and gave His blood. And so as we partake of the cup today, we remember the death of Christ on our behalf. We realize the depth of our guilt. We come to realize it more and more as we grow. And even then we find that His grace is sufficient. We find that the blood of Christ avails for us even for those sins. And we rejoice and we thank You for what Christ has done for us that we have been redeemed in Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Well, thank you for enduring with me for an extended period of time. This is the, this is the uh, type of issue we have to deal with right now. And so we need to learn from Scripture and see what Scripture says about how we should proceed as a congregation and as individuals as well. So thank you for uh, uh, enduring with me today. We, on this week of the month, is our benevolence giving. And there's a box in the back and there's a plate in the, in the foyer that you can give. That, uh, that helps those who are needy, those who are struggling, um, primarily in our congregation, but not always. Um, people who need help. And so this is, this is something that uh, we get to do together. 
Listen with me to uh, the words of Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen and amen. God bless you all. And you are dismissed.